said, I am called a Barney, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, sleepyheads. <clears throat> you know, I'm often asked, uh, Father, what is this spiritual awakening business? What is it? Well, you know, that's not an easy one to answer. But I come up with some sort of a solution. I say, well, you know, it's not necessarily a sudden thing. It can be like a physical awakening. It can take you a little while. It can go on, maybe for years. Well, uh, this morning I am witnessing uh, some physical awakenings here as I look out. I hope I can keep you coming. I hope that I don't reverse the process in the, mid the next few minutes. And if you're having any sort of a spiritual awakening, I hope I may contribute somewhat to what I say this morning along those lines of a spiritual awakening. You know, it might sound trite, but I say this in all sincerity. I'm very, very happy to be here this morning. Not only happy, but lucky. I'm going to tell you something. Last month, uh, when your chairman called me, Maury called me, long by long distance, invited me down here. Boy, that guy's a salesman. He started out first by telling me to what I was being invited. I was being invited to the Riviera, and he started to describe it, Palm Springs. He said, you ever been there? I said, no. I heard Eisenhower's been there and a few others. <laughs> Bing Crosby. I used to love a block from Bing Crosby. I hear he has a, quite a place out here. I want to drive by it this afternoon and take a look at it. Uh, but he said, you know, this is tremendous down here. Father. He gave me the big pitch, you know. And then he said, by the way, he said, would you mind coming down and give us a little talk? And I said, now, uh, Maury, as a redneck, you know it's not that simple. I said, you know I've got to get clearance to the chancery office of the bishop. And, you know, sometimes that can take a week. And he says, don't worry at all. So I'll take care of that. And I thought, mm, mm. You know, I began to take the guy's inventory right there. <laughs> I wonder if this guy was really a phony. I thought he maybe was drunk. <laughs> Just a week before, they'd opened up the Hilton Hotel, and one of my customers, one of my boys, called me from the Hilton at 2 o'clock in the morning. Wanted me to come down, join him. So I thought, well, maybe that's another one of these deals. My, all my hopes started to disappear. So I told him, I said, well, you have to get clearance. He said, don't worry about that. So he hung up. And I thought, well, I'll hear from him maybe in a week. Maybe I won't. Within an hour. Within an hour. Here's Maury. All fixed up. Yeah, this guy's something. He's out of this world. And then he said, by the way now, Father, he said, uh, I want to send you your tickets. I've got your ticket to your reservations. He said, now, how am I going to send this? To who am I going to send it? Father Barney who? And I said, well, Father Barney Nixon. He said, what would you say? I said, Nixon. N-I-X-O-N. He said, you mean like in Dick Nixon? <laughs> he says, Father, I hate to say this, but it's all off. You know, we're not supposed to enter into public controversy or politics, but we didn't have to. I knew how he voted. <clears throat> <laughs> and 
And here's where my alcoholic tendencies came out. They slipped. Like he said, I was a lush. And this is where they slipped. I said, that guy Nixon, for eight years, he was my introduction to every speech I ever gave. I'd have to get up and say, I am Father Nixon. I am no relation to Dick Nixon. So I'd save myself all those questions. It wasn't bad the first term, but the last two years of that second term, I said, thank God they've got a law that he can't run for the third term. So what did I do? I play a little politics. I said, by the way, Maury, I haven't finished my name. He said, no. He said, what is it? I said, my name is Father Bernard John Nixon. You know, I could just hear the smile creep up on his face. He says, you mean John, like in John Fitzgerald Kennedy? Well, I let him smile. I let him enjoy it. And then I said, no. Not John and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, but like John and John Barleycorn. I am Father Barney the Alcoholic. <clears throat> well, now that I've introduced myself, I'll introduce my subject. I'd like to say a few words this morning on a subject very dear to my heart. And you know one that I feel might profit all of us. You know, since I've been an AA, this is my principle. I don't, in a talk, give what I think the people want to hear. I give what I think they should hear, whether they like it or not. That's the way I operate. And I want to also mention this. that When I speak as Father Nixon from the pulpit, I speak primarily to the congregation. When I speak up here from this platform as Father Barney, I speak principally to Father Barney and only for Father Barney. Now, if you want to listen in on what I have to say, if you can get anything from what I say, then go ahead and do it. I hope you can profit from it. And another thing, when I speak as Father Barney, I try not to preach. This is not a religion, as we were told. This is not a worship service. This is a good old meeting. So I'd like to speak this morning in a general way on the 11th step. And then in conclusion, I'd like to meditate with you on the Lord's Prayer. We'll make a little meditation together. In fact, every AA meeting that I attend for me is a meditation. It's a prayer. I've always looked upon an AA meeting as a prayer. It's not a prayer meeting by any manner means. But by this prayer, you can find God. And as we're going to see, that's the object of all prayer, is contact with God. And you can certainly find God in an AA meeting. We sought through prayer and meditation. We sought. That, for me, would indicate personal effort. This is a program of action. I want to find God. I go searching. I put out effort. You know, I think we put out as much effort as we have motivation. Why do I want to put out the effort? Why? I hope this morning in this little talk I can give you some motives, added motives that you already have for finding God. 
through prayer and meditation. We sought through prayer and meditation. We'll come to that a moment later. To improve our conscious contact with God. To me, this would indicate that we already have some contact at this stage of the game. Now we want to improve it. How did we get this contact, this union? You know, it says there in the fifth chapter, I love that chapter. I meditate often on the fifth chapter. To me, that's the favorite of all my chapters, the fifth chapter. I meditate often on it. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. To me, the AA program is a path, a journey. A journey of a sick and alcoholic in pursuit of his God. In the first step, we start the journey the hard way, like the prodigal son. Actually, we start back in the first step. We've gone from God, and now we check ourselves, we start back. I call that the step of the aversion of nature. Nature turns me around. My body. We say that this is a spiritual program. I agree. But let's not forget that we're not angels. We have bodies. We can get the heaves. We can get the shakes. And if we didn't get the heaves and the shakes, we wouldn't have had any interest in the spiritual part of this program. <laughs> I thank God for mine. I thank God for the fact that I used to hear music, and I am a lousy musician. I often mention the couple singers that I have a particular distaste for. But I used to hear them sing, and I know I was wrong when I heard them, because I would have never turned them on. That scared me. That was the aversion of nature. Nature saying, you've had enough. You better do something about this. So what do you do? You turn your back on the thing that's destroying you, the bottle. You turn around. But that's all you do in this step. You turn around. Now, in the second step, I turn too the higher power. It's not enough to turn around. One of the reasons I didn't turn around sooner was this. I didn't know what to turn around to. There I was a priest. What good could I get out of this thing? I'd heard of AA. All the drunks in town used to come to me. I used to solve their problems. I sent them all to AA. Get rid of them. Yeah, on occasion, I asked, would you come up forward to the meeting? Me to a meeting, I'll give scandal. Yeah. Give scandal. But that was my problem. I was really alone. I drank alone. I knew what theological drunkenness was, what it was to commit a serious sin, and I was a theologian enough to know how far to go. That's as far as I go, and I'd never go any farther. And I'd fight the effects which added to my capacity. I didn't want to get scandal, so I'd drink alone. I, I became more lonely. I used every trick in the book to cover and hide. And I did a pretty good job, but boy, it was, a, it was the toughest job I have ever been through. It was work. And I used to say to myself, well, why are you doing it? You get nothing out of it. You fight the effects. Why do I do it? 
And yet I couldn't stop. And how was I going to stop? Was I going to go to the bishop, my superior, and tell him that I was on this thing that might send me to Siberia? <laughs> I'd heard of AA, but I'd never heard of a priest being an AA. I'd heard of one priest in the East, but they're none in my territory, the Oregon Territory. I was a pioneer. <laughs> and I didn't like to look at a new frontier. So I kept fighting. And thank God one day when I was giving a retreat and I thought I was doing fine and covering up, no one knew, my sponsor, my future sponsor, was making that retreat. And he spotted it. He came in. I thought, well, here's another man. I'll solve his problems. I turned sideways so he couldn't get the whiff of it. And he said, Father, I didn't come in to talk about my problem. He says, I came in to talk about yours. <laughs> that was the first time anybody had ever put it to me that way, and that's what I needed. I felt a tremendous relief. I'd been running. And now finally they caught up with me, and I felt a relief, I suppose, like the poor guy that's chasing away from the raft. And once he gets caught, he says, thank God, at least that's over. It's too, it's too much. So he says, I'm going to help you if you want the help. I said, I need it bad. He says, okay, this is what we're going to do. He says, I respect your priesthood. He was of my faith. But he says, I'm going to deal with you just like I will with any other alcoholic. And he says, I dub you as of now, Barney. That's how I got my name. And he says, you're going to listen to me. And I'm going to let you have it both barrels. And he did. I thank God for him. And I pray every day to him because I buried him two years ago. Comparatively young fellow. Had a heart condition. Didn't make it, but I pray for him every day, and I thank God every day for him. We started out in a skid row group. We went down about a pair of slacks, sport shirt, Barney's. <laughs> he says, you know, I'm not going to take you to the Mount Normal Hotel. He says, I'm going to take you to Gleason Street, right down on skid row. He says, I want to show you where you can end up if you keep going. And I found out. And I thank God for that group. I really do. My first meeting, a fellow got up. He'd been beat silly. And he said, you know, when I came on this program, I didn't understand God. He said, I looked up the definition of God in the dictionary. And then he proceeded to give one of the most spiritual talks I've ever heard. And I said, this must be great business. They can take a poor guy like that and put words like that in his mouth and in his heart. That isn't much of a story. But you know I went down to the Gleason Street group the other day. And every time I go in there, I say, well, but for the grace of God, I could have been like any one of these poor guys in here that, is, that are not making it. Doctors, lawyers, judges, priests. I thank God. In the third step, I commit myself unconditionally to the journey. And then in the inventory steps, I remove the roadblocks. 
that may get in my way. And then I get to the 11th step, and now I make progress, greater progress through prayer and meditation, and that's where we are now. To increase our conscious contact with God. I like this word. You know, I think that's one of our basic problems, that we live in the subconscious. You know, we always hear that alcoholism is a disease, a fourfold disease, physical compulsion, mental obsession, joint to emotional immaturity, with result in moral deterioration. I like to add a fifth, with an innate blindness that goes with this thing. We're the last to see and the first to forget. And I think that's the way it is with God. We've got to live a conscious life. Not an unconscious or subconscious life, but a conscious life. We've got to make a conscious effort to realize that we are with God and God's with us. That we're in partnership. That gives us strength. That gives us confidence. It's only when we forget this that we start to fear, to worry. As we understand, you know, I can uh, read about God. I've studied theology four years. I study it now. I have to keep up on it. But that's not the knowledge that saves you. The knowledge that saves you is something that you get through prayer. Study something that comes from the outside to you. This knowledge of what we're talking about is something that's already in there, but we make it now our own. Through prayer and meditation, we digest it. We make it practical in our lives. I've heard many a poor fellow come in here and say, Father, I don't believe in God. And then we'll talk a while, and I see that he does. He believes that there's a God. I say, no, it's not a question that you don't believe in God. It's a question that you've lost your trust in God. You know he's up there, but you're afraid of him. You don't trust him. There's a difference. Praying only for knowledge of his will, I'll discuss this later, and the power to carry it out. There are two graces that we must constantly pray for. One is the grace to enlighten our mind, and the other is the grace to strengthen our will. When I came into England, I was so followed up mentally that the only word that made any sense to me in that club room was the word think. Oh, I saw the words tolerance, serenity, sobriety. I looked at the twelve steps, the traditions. I was too sick mentally to, to, to even think of them. There was one thing I knew I had to do. I was like a boxer had been clipped. I was in trouble. And I had to clear my head up, and I was going to die, and I knew it. So I had to think. Think. Just keep thinking. Don't quit thinking. And if I didn't know what to do, I'd ask. I'd ask my sponsor. I'd call him. Jim, what do you think about this? I was hurt, and I knew it. I was a poor risk. And I was that way for six months. I wouldn't have bet a dime on my chances if I hadn't been in AA. If I hadn't stayed close to my sponsor, I wouldn't have bet a dime on my chances. I'd have made one stupid mistake, and there's no margin for error. I might have made it in good faith, but that wouldn't have saved me. I'd have been dead. So I've got to pray for knowledge. I've got to pray to think. And I've got to think tough. This is not an easy program. It's simple, but it's not easy. Anyone who says it's easy, it's easy. I don't think it's working. 
You know, we're as tough as we think. You see some little sawed-off guy, you know, and you try to push him around, he's a wildcat. Well, he thinks tough. Here's some great big fellow, you know, not much up here, you can push him around. He's not thinking. Not only not thinking tough, he's not thinking, period. Now, anyway, I think we've got to be tough on ourselves. And not easy on others, but very understanding and tolerant of others. But when it comes to ourselves, we've got to be tough. I do. I've got to be tough with myself. I've got to think tough. It's not enough for me to know. I must do. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why there are fellows that are not on this program, men and women who are afraid to come. Because they know, coming in here, they're going to be given knowledge of what they should do, and they're afraid they won't be able to do it. I want to tip you off. God works in pairs when he sends graces. When he sends you a knowledge to see, he will also send you a knowledge to do. And I must remember that. I must have confidence. Don't fear knowledge. Because God will give you the strength to carry out that knowledge. We've got to be rigorously honest, intellectually honest. As far as prayer is concerned, we know there are two kinds, vocal prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, where we pronounce the words with our lips, and mental or meditation. Well, I think. I think about something. I meditate if I want to. If you're a woman, you meditate when you make baking a cake. You meditate on how you're going to bake this. And you hope it's going to turn out the way you intend. If you're making a table, you meditate on how you're going to do it. That is natural meditation. Now bring God into the picture, and I am meditating supernaturally. You know, I like to compare meditation to TV. I'm not much of a TV fan myself, but I like to use it as an example. When you meditate, you use all the powers that God has given you, your memory, your imagination, your intellect, and your will. Now, suppose I want to meditate. The first thing I do, I say, what am I going to meditate on? Well, we're meditating on the Lord's Prayer. So we see our Lord there on the mountain of the Beatitudes, and we hear the apostles say, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, well, now praise, prayest thus. Say, Our Father, who art in heaven. So we set the picture. We imagine that. That is the screen. We get the picture. But you've got to get a clear picture. It's got to mean something, so you have to tune it in. Now, how do you tune it in? Through prayer. Meditation is a gift. Supernatural meditation is a gift. And if God comes through, it's only because it's a grace, a gift that he gives you. So you pray, you ask for it. Dear God, come through to me. So I, I pray. Then I sit there and I hear these words. I say to myself, who is he talking to? Those people 2,000 years ago, yes, but he's also talking to me. I apply what he says to me. To me. 2,000 years later. That's my mind. Then my intellect, my will steps in and says, now what are you going to do about it? You make resolutions. That's meditation. Simple. Watching TV. 
Spiritual TV. And then, I'm not much of a TV fan. I, I don't know why. Maybe I don't have the, the qualities to be a TV fan. I like the radio. I like the radio. hope there's no TV people in here. I'm not offending anyone. Uh, but I like the radio. No one has ever improved on my imagination. I'm not a sportscaster, but I'm telling you, boy, I see tremendous pictures when I get a good fellow like Vince Scully describing it to me. Boy, I see plays that are not there. You're looking at a little screen that big, you can't even see the ball half the time, you know. I want to see the ball. I want to see the action and my imagination, boy. It gives me a beautiful picture. Now, it's the same thing in prayer. I've got to have a certain natural ability to pray. Certain qualifications I've got to bring to prayer. What's the first one? I would say this, humility, which is a necessary qualification for any alcoholic. Humility. What is humility? One of the most misunderstood virtues that I know. I think most people think humility is being a doormat, being pushed around and inspiring. I don't like that kind of humility. Humility is truth. Humility is seeing yourself for what you are. Your good points and your bad points and acknowledging both of them. It's not going around and saying, well, I can't play the piano. Risky. I can't play the piano. Well, he can't. No, he's dead, isn't he? But get, <laughs> but get one of these modern ones. I don't even remember a modern one. But suppose you get a great artist goes around and says, well, I can't do this. He'd say, that's phony. He wants me to say, oh, yes, you can, which probably I wouldn't say. But humility is true. Accepting my good points, admitting them, accepting my character defects. What relation does that have to honesty? To me, honesty is putting humility to practice. I know lots of people who are humble say, I have an alcoholic father, but they're not doing anything about it. They're not coming to AA. They're dying. They're not honest. They're not acting on the knowledge that God's given them. They're phonies. Now, when I pray, I'm being honest. I admit to myself and to God, I'm a needer. I need you, God. That's why I'm praying. The, the proud fellow doesn't have any inclination to pray. What does he need prayer for? Or he might be like the Pharisee, went up to the temple to pray. Remember, he went up and beat his chest so he got all the attention of the people around. He says, I thank God I'm not like the rest of men, adulterers, thieves, so forth. He says, I give tithes a lot. I fast twice a week. I'm a wonderful guy. And the poor publican goes in the back of the church. He doesn't even raise his eyes at them. And he says, Beats his breast says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Christ say to these two? He said, the publican went away justified. The Pharisee went away condemned. Do you see, in regard to the Pharisee, prayer was a monologue. It was just one way, me, to get attention. Prayer is a dialogue, essentially. It's not only talking, but it's receiving, it's listening. And that, as an alcoholic, is what I've got to learn to do. I talk and then I listen. You know, I talked to a fellow one day and he says, You know, Father, I'm an agnostic. I says, You're 
by him. And then he quarreled with you. But I said, what seems to be your trouble? He says, well, I, I just can't reach God. I said, I've got something to tell you. I can't either. He looked at me. An agnostic priest? I don't know what he thought. He said, what kind of guy is this? I said, none of us can. We don't go to God. God comes down to us. All we've got to do is invite him and leave ourselves open, disposed. That's what he wants. He's the aggressor. He's chasing me. He was chasing each one of us as we were drinking. He was chasing us to get us back to himself. But we were running. When did he catch us? When we stopped. Here we are. I give up. Then he took over. You know, God's grace is like the air around me. As long as I breathe it, I live. I progress. But you know, I could stupidly do this. I don't know for how long. <laughs> and that's all we were doing is alky. Once in a while, I take a belt. <laughs> we always had time for that one. When were we so when we stopped and we breathed God in? I don't know of a more beautiful prayer than this one. This is my third step. God's will. I breathe it in. Dear God, I accept it. Then I exhale my egotism. I try to get rid of myself because the more I get rid of myself, the more he can come in. I don't know of a more beautiful prayer than that one. And it's also good for the lungs. I think the next necessary quality for prayer is confidence. You know, since I've been in AA, I've learned so much about confidence. I used to think I knew her, but I gave tremendous sermons on confidence. The trust in God, even I was shaking up there in my boots. But AA taught me confidence. You know, God cured me of my lack of confidence, and he gave me a way to check my alcoholism. That is the greatest miracle that he could have worked in my lifetime, and I know it. And whenever things get rough and tough, I just think one thing, listen, you chump. He's worked the greatest of the miracles. Anything else is peanuts, so just remember that. He can do anything. If he could keep, get you sober and keep you sober, he can do anything. That's how I keep my confidence up. I remember one time when I was in my drinking days, as I recall, too, I went to the dentist, and I'm a coward with a dentist, I tell you that. I used to teach pre-med and young dentists and all that, but I'm a coward when I go into that. I just, uh, even now, except now that they got those high-powered drills, they get through before you, uh, they get you strapped down, so that isn't too bad. But I was sitting out there waiting my turn, you know, and going through those magazines, and you know how I was nervous, how nervous I am when I come back for the third time and realize that this is the third time I've looked at this magazine. I said, I'm getting pretty nervous. Well, as I was sitting there, an elderly gentleman came in and sat beside me, and I noticed he was nervous. So I thought, well, maybe two nervous people get together here without to calm one another down. So I started a conversation. And I found out the reason the old gentleman was nervous wasn't because of the dentist, because he was sitting next to me, a Catholic priest. <laughs> I 
was before Pope John's. So I thought, well, boy, I better do something about this. He said, you know, Father, I've seen many of priests. I'm not of your faith. I respect the cloth. And I never expected in my lifetime ever to talk to a priest. He says, I appreciate this. It made me feel very humble. And he says, you know, uh, I think that this is the answer to a prayer. And I said, yes. He said, yeah. He says, I want to tell you something. I want to tell it to you as a priest of God, as a representative of God. He says, I want you to tell God something for me. He says, I want you to tell God that I'm going to quit praying. I said, what did you say? He says, I want you to tell God that I am going to quit praying. And I never talked to a man more serious. Here was a man in trouble. I said, what happens? What's the matter? He says, I'll tell you. He said, 40 years ago, I began to pray for a particular intention. And he told me what it was, and it was quite an intention. He says, I can swear before you and God that in 40 years I have not missed a day of prayer for this intention. I have not received an answer to this petition. I meet you here today. That's a sign I think that I want you to tell God that I'm going to quit praying for this intention. I'm going to quit praying, period. He had a resentment against God. Well, I've never had one like this thrown at me before. And here I was nervous waiting for the dance. So I said a little prayer. And I had read this statement. There is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. And the thought occurred to me, the grace, the light. I said, you know, it is providential we meet today. Because God wants me to tell you something. And he looked at me and said, my goodness, this priest must have a rocky talkie. <laughs> he sure gets them fast. I said, God wants me to tell you that your prayer has been answered. And his face fell. He said, my gosh, the guy's deaf. He didn't even hear me. I said, I heard you. I said, did you ever hear the saying that there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer? And he said, no, I never did. I said, I want to prove to you that your prayer has been answered. I said, suppose you'd received the answer to your prayer, say, a month after you started praying 40 years ago. I said, could you be telling me today that you have never missed a day's prayer in 40 years? He looked at me and he said, my gosh, he said, probably not. He said, I'd probably quit praying. I said, you most likely. I said, you know, you've received one of the greatest gifts God can give any man on this earth, and that is the gift of perseverance in prayer. Well, you know, it was an awakening for me. That was a spiritual awakening for me. It hit me right away. You know, the old gentleman looked at me and he says, Father, I never realized it in that light before. He says, I've got another message for you. <laughs> he says, I want you to tell God that I'm going to continue to pray for that petition, and I hope I never get it. Well, I'll keep going. They're still awake, most of them. So. <laughs> Suppose we run through briefly a little meditation while you're all awake now. We got you physically awake. Let's see if we can get a spiritual awakening here. The Lord's Prayer, given to us by Christ himself. Our Father. Father. You know that second step, when we're beat, Sully, nature is taking its toll on us. We're in the throes of despair. We can go one way or the other. We either make it 
are we probably going to complete despair? We give up. Like the poor guy in Skidrow. Well, those poor guys have gone into complete despair. They have nothing to get sober for. In other words, in that second step, we needed a power greater than ourselves to help us. And we were so alcoholically fuzzy that we couldn't pinpoint that on any one person. In fact, when I came into AA, you know where I got my power? From the group. I fell it in that AA group, and that Skid Row group is where I felt God, the power of God. But I felt this power that was strong enough to help me. I had to be impressed with strength. I was powerless, but I needed infinite power to help me. And this is where I get it. I got a power. Now, I'll get rid of that bottle if you'll give me the power to live without it. And don't kid me, because I am in serious earnestness here. I've got to have that power. I find it. But then they tell in the third step, you've got to go into partnership of this power. Well, that's a different story. He's helping me, but he scares me. His power scares me. I'm trying to do better, but I, I'm, in no, I'm, in not, I'm not in that company. In other words, now I've got to be impressed not only with infinite power, but infinite goodness to encourage me to come on. I've got to realize that this power is a person who loves me personally. I can't get very involved in a love affair with a great power, but I can love a person. I can confide in a person. Who's that person going to be? It's going to be God, the Father. He loves me personally. You know, I think this is one of the greatest problems that we have, not only alcoholics, but all people. There's so many of us. How can God love me personally? How can he understand every little thing that I need? See, he's infinite and we're finite, and it's so hard for us. It's a different way. The way I like to look upon it is this. You're down on the beach. It's a nice, beautiful, sunny afternoon. Suppose in this particular area of the beach there are a thousand other people with you enjoying the sunshine. Do you get only one one-thousandth of the rays of the sun because there are 999 other people down there? No, you get it all. If you don't believe me, try it sometime. You can get just as sunburned on a crowded beach as being there all alone. I So I'm not just a little pebble on the beach. I'm a person that God loves, that God is extremely interested in. Now I can get interested in that. I can understand that. And I think as alcoholics, we need a good, clear concept of God. You know, so many tell me, Father, gee, I, I'm afraid of God. I fear God. I'm afraid of Him. Well, I was telling this, you know, we as alcoholics, one of our problems is a, a guilt complex. Uh, in this area, I think we're neurotic. You know, there, there's a neurotic guilt. Uh, suppose you take a normal person that steals a dollar. Well, if they're normal, they have a dollar's worth of guilt, don't they? They feel a dollar's worth of guilt. I don't know how much that is today with the devaluation of the dollar, but... 
But an alcoholic or a neurotic, he doesn't feel a dollar's worth, he feels a thousand dollars worth. Or he doesn't feel any particular specific, he just feels guilty. I've had him come to me, gee, I feel guilty about well, I don't know what about, but I just feel guilty. I'm afraid. Of what? Well, if I could tell you, then I wouldn't be afraid. See, that's it. If I could tell you, I wouldn't be afraid. That's why they're afraid, because they don't know what they're afraid of. And that was the alchemy. Now, that's to me why this fifth step of our program is so important. I've got to get rid of guilt. I cannot, as an alcoholic, maintain any guilt for any length of time without getting in trouble. So in the fifth step, I get rid of it. I go to God through my, whoever I choose, the priest or the doctor or whoever I'm giving my, making my fifth step to, I'm making this to God, to myself, to another human being. And I go with one of two motives, or I can go with two motives. I can go as a son to his father who's done wrong, who has a servile fear of his father. He fears the just punishments of his father. You know, when I look upon God as a father, I shouldn't look upon him as some old naive person that you can con out of his shoes. You can't fool God. You can't fool God, and we shouldn't try. He's going to be just. He's infinitely just. He's merciful. But if we don't have it coming, he's going to give it to us. We must be able to accept that. Now, that is a source of fear. But then I can go to God with this attitude. It's a filial fear. I fear this. I fear being separated from a good father that I love. Sure, I fear his just punishment, but the thing that hurts me the most is I've cut myself off from him. I've hurt him. I've disappointed him. You know, we always talk about our trust in God. God has a certain amount of trust he should be able to put in us. And I think every alcoholic comes on this program that gets God's grace to get here, we owe God that trust. We should be able to have God say, I trust this person. And when I offend him, I let him down in this respect. So I go to him and I say, dear God, I've been stupid. I've made mistakes. But I want to try again. Forgive me. Now, he's removed my guilt. He says, okay, you're forgiven. Don't do it again. Learn from your mistakes. You know, there are three kinds of people that come to me as a priest. There's the weak person who knows better, but is too weak to do the good. There's the strong person who knows the good, but is too bullheaded to do the good and does, chooses the evil. And then there's the stupid person. Of the three, I would much rather deal with the weak and the strong than with the stupid. The guy that keeps making the same stupid mistakes who never learns. You know, I always maintain in this business you've got to be a pro, not an amateur. You know, an amateur is a fellow who may have a lot of enthusiasm. School spirit. <laughs> you got there trying his training. But someone out he always loses the game for you. Some stupid mistake he makes. So at the end of the year, what do we do? We graduate and we give him a letter and say, Thank God he's gone. 
We'll give you the inspiration of our words. But I'm thank God he won't be back next year. You know, a professional makes a mistake. He gets a letter also. But it's a letter of release. You make too many mistakes. You're fired. Now, to me, every alcoholic has got to be a pro. There's no margin for error. I've had fellas come to me, well, what happened? I always like to go back on these slippies and say, what happened? Let's go back and reconstruct it, because let's not make the same mistake. Well, I quit going to meetings. When you quit going to meetings, you quit a lot of other things. You quit being aware of the fact that you have a problem. You weren't watching your stinking thinking, and all the other things go with it, and you just were leading with your chin, and you got clipped. Let's face it. You know, they asked a professional football player after they awarded him as the player of the year. They asked him, what do you have to be to be a pro? He said, you've got to be rich. Hey, what do you mean you got to be rich? You've got to be rich. R-I-C-H. R. You've got to recognize your mistakes. I don't care how good you are in college. You're, you're still an amateur, and you, you've, you've got mistakes, and you've got to learn what they are. Recognize them. I. You've got to isolate them. You may not be able to get rid of them, but you've got to isolate them so they don't do further damage. C, you've got to correct them. H, you harvest on your work. Now you become a great player. You've learned from your mistakes. Now, it's pretty much the same way with alcoholism. We come in here and we learn, recognize our character defects. We isolate them to the extent that we don't let them get us into further trouble. In the meantime, we're working on them, trying to correct them, and what do we do? We enjoy sobriety and serenity. We're pros. You know, they say... You alcoholics are professional drinkers when you were drinking. You knew all the tricks. And then a few hours. Well, I don't feel particularly proud about that. But I feel in this program of recovery, i got to be a pro. I can't make mistakes. I just make one stupid mistake. Father Barney, who's up here talking to you, and I can be just as stupid, I can get just as drunk as anybody else. If I make one stupid mistake... And I pray every day that God will preserve me from my stupidity because I was stupid. And I could return to that same stupidity if I quit praying. Our Father, not just mine. I think one of our basic problems is egotism. And I found out this, that there is no person strong enough to remove the egotism from my life but only God. A personal God can do it. And to me, that is my job on AA, is trying to get rid of self so that God can come in. The more I get rid of self, the more I empty myself, the more I can possess God, or the more he can possess me. Who art in heaven. You know, I think that we alcoholics are blessed, the ones that make it, to get on this program. I maintain this, and I, all due respects to you non-alcoholics, you're wonderful people too. You're saints to stay with us. You have to be. But all due respects, we are a little more attuned, I think, to the heavenly or the supernatural. I don't know of anyone who can get more bored of life and material things than the alcoholic. Completely bored, disillusioned, we're phonies ourselves, but we can spot phoniness everywhere, and it, it's something we just can't stomach. I know I can't. I've got to watch my tolerance, particularly when I think they're putting it over on me. 
I get so bored. Now, I think that's why we went into orbit so often. You know, well, well, these astronauts weren't the first ones. The Alkies were. You know, um, uh, we're going to have a slip-up down there one of these days. They're not going to get off that pad. It's not infallible, but the Alkies the always infallible. Give him one shot and he's in orbit. I know a fellow's been in orbit for 22 years. They've never come down. Why do... Why does our Lord say here, remind us of heaven? Because, you know, I think we've got such a hazy idea of heaven. We've got a pretty good idea of hell, but heaven, what's heaven? Now, one time I was chaplain in the hospital, and some poor old fellow I was helping there, trying to get him through the pearly gates. He was about ready to go any time. And I get a hurry-up call, come up to the room, so-and-so, old Jim. So I, I went the heck, I thought he had a scruple or something, so I went up there. And boy, he was upset. I thought, boy, what happened here? He said, Father, i got a real, real problem. And I thought it was going to be some big moral problem. I said, what, did you kill somebody sometime or something like that? No. He said, Father, would you answer me this question? He says, is there going to be fishing in heaven? Is there going to be fishing in heaven? Well, I'd never heard that one before. And I didn't have any answer. He was unhappy because here he was ready to go to heaven all set. But he wanted Brother Willard to be fishing. If he wasn't going to be fishing, he wasn't too interested in going. <laughs> well, you know, I thought of St. Peter. <laughs> he pulled me out on this one. Whenever St. Peter got bored, he used to say, let's go fishing. <laughs> now if they go, the apostles go fishing. And I bet he asked our Lord many times, Lord, is there going to be fishing in heaven? Well, I think there is going to be some kind of fishing. I don't know, probably fishing for stars or whatever it is, but there'll be something that'll take its place. You know, you also often hear the expression, oh, go to hell. <laughs> go to hell. A nice, resentful person <laughs> who's just on the threshold of self-pity. Go to hell. How many people have ever heard say, go to heaven? <laughs> but just as easy... And you know, you could get over your resentment if you wished heaven on somebody. They go to heaven. Yeah, well, you're going to be an angel someday. Say, go to heaven. Try that sometime. That'll help you get over your resentments. Hallowed be thy name. Praise be thy name. You know, we're told in AA that we've got to be humble. I think one of the signs of humility is the ability of a person to praise. The proud guy doesn't want to praise. Why? Because he feels if he praises, he's putting somebody up above him. If he can knock him down, that makes me better. I'm not sitting here doing nothing, but I'll crack him down, and I step all over the bodies of these that I've destroyed. I am number one, and what have you done? Nothing but knock a bunch of people down. You're proud. That's why God wants us to praise him, because if we don't praise him, we're going to get around to start praising ourselves, and we're in real trouble. We're in pride. Praise, gratitude, thank him. If it wasn't for him, none of us would be here. I praise him, I thank him. You know, I think we take God too much for granted. He's supposed to do all these things. He's infinite. So I don't even take time to tell him. I remember when I was studying for the priesthood up in... Las Gatos, California. I'm a native of Calif uh, California. I lived here eight years. 
Maybe that's more than some of you people have. Well, anyway, Arthur Gate was right next to Yehudi Menelman, the great violinist. Uh, he used to come over. We'd go over to his place. He and his sister, they used to come driving horseback and around our place. He's a nice boy. And every spring, before he went out on his world concert, he used to come over to the Fiala Gate. We didn't have a nice place like this. All we had was a dining room. Well, was the old dining room. We'd push back the tables. They'd bring in a big grand piano that cost more than all the furniture that we had in the place. And he'd come in his suit and duck outfit with his accompanist, and he'd put on a two-hour concert. Well, his dad was his manager. And, I, you know, I'm not much of a, a, a fan for a violin because uh, I had a sister who took the violin. In fact, I'm allergic to it. But the thing used to enthrall me was the way he could manipulate those hands. If you, I, probably some of you have seen him. The beautiful hands and the way he could stroke them. I used to sit there enthralled. And also the thing that used to impress me that when he was through, he was completely covered with perspiration. His car was all willed, and he looked like he'd been out wrestling. And I asked his father, I said, my goodness, does this man put out this much energy for all these concerts? He said, no. He said, you may not believe this, Father, but this is Yehudi's greatest conference. And I said, you mean to tell me right here in this old dining room he puts on his best performance? Yeah. And he said, you know why? Because you people are so sincere in your gratitude, your appreciation. He says, you know, you may not realize this, but one of the great problems that a great artist has is they're taking too much for granted. Uh, if they have a great night, what the heck, it's six dollars a seat, it's supposed to be good. But let him miss a few notes. Ha-ha, you heard he's slipping, he's not practicing enough, see? And he says, you know, these great artists appreciate when you come up and sincerely say, I enjoyed it. And he says, that's why he puts on his best performance for you young priests. Thy kingdom come. That kingdom is already here for us. The kingdom of his grace. We're living in it. We're surviving in it. But for the grace of God, there go each one of us. Go down in any bar, any saloon in this town, and there you have the answer. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. This separates the men from the boys. This is where it really gets into the, the infighting. God's will, as you know, is threefold. His creative will, the will that brought us all here. Let there be light, and there was light. He created the earth. He created the stage of this life. He put each one of us on it to play our part. And why did he do it? Because he loved us. God is infinite love. He didn't need any one of us. Did you ever stop to think how much better off the world was a hundred years ago? What have we contributed? He certainly didn't need me to save the world. Get along pretty well without me. Why did he put me here? Because he loved me. Love, the essence of love is to share. God is love, as St. John says. So he wanted to share his goodness with me, so he made me. Creation is an act of love, not of hatred, not a tyrannical act of a tyrannical God who puts me here and says, well, I'll see you someday and hope you make it. <laughs> Try to avoid hell over here. This is the way to go. I hope you make it. Good luck. You're on your own. Nah. What a way to start life. And if there are people who take that attitude toward life, they resent life. Period. 
That's about as deep as a resentment as you can get. Then there's his directive will. He puts us here and he directs us to heaven, back to himself, through our conscience. That voice which tells me to do good, to avoid evil. Through the Ten Commandments. Through the principles of his church, whatever church you belong to. Then there's his permissive will. He permitted that I be an alcoholic. He didn't intend, but he permitted it. He put the potential there in me to be an alcoholic, and I went ahead and did a good job on the potential. In stupidity, I did it. I, I started out drinking apostolically, believe it or not. To help some poor guy loosen his tongue so he could get it out to the gut fire. I sit there and I always hate it and I still do. I hate the taste, the smell of the stuff. But I'd sit there apostolically and let this guy drink and I'd drink with him so he could loosen his tongue so he could get it off his chest. Well, he got it off his chest, but I was developing my compulsion. So he didn't intend I'd do that, but he permitted it. And I hope in some little way that I'll be able to make retribution. I feel I have a talent now, like myself. And for that reason, you know, in respect to God's will and my will, I don't like it now. There's one of two ways I can do it. I can turn my life and will over to God, not because I want to, but because I have to. I've got no choice. I think we all came on the program pretty much in that position. We had to. But there's a certain tension. There's a certain holding back. Now, that of itself can create tension, can re create resentment, can create self-pity if I don't get out of it. So I've got to try to, as soon as possible, to go from compliance to surrender. I give you my life and my will, the acceptance that I'm an alcoholic. I do it not because I have to, but because I want to. I surrender. I'm free. There's no tension. I'm happy. I'm peaceful. Now that's our fight. I don't think you make the third step just once. I make it many, many times a day. I have to. And I pray to God, dear God, give me the grace to surrender. Give me the grace to surrender. That's why I take those deep breaths. Okay, I'll tell you. <clears throat> there goes self. Now, if I keep doing that long enough and my heart holds out, maybe I'll get a little of it. Give us this day our daily bread, 24 hours a day. God doesn't fill up the old bread bin for the week, just for the day. You know, we've each one of us got a moment-by-moment -moment contract with God. I'm a heart patient, seven years into it. And I know this, since I've had this heart attack, more and more, it's been a great blessing to me, and I use AA on it. Uh, I'm literally and figuratively one heartbeat away from termination. <coughs> Doesn't bother me one bit. I haven't anything to do. I didn't have anything about, to do about starting this thing. I haven't anything to do about terminating it. So I work on a moment-by-moment basis. Why should I worry about the next 15 minutes? You may be calling down here to the morgue and say, come get Father Barney. He talked himself out. <laughs> Thank God. I'm coming to the end.
as we forgive those who, for, who trespass against us. You know, if you forget anything else that I've told you this morning, I hope you don't forget this. I've got an obsession on resentments and self-pity, a positive obsession, and I hope I never lose it. I see it destroy more people faster than anything I know, and that includes non-alcoholics. It's the most destructive thing I know on this earth. Resentment always ends in self-pity. Self-pity always ends in some form of suicide, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, or moral. And if you want to destroy yourself, just start crying in your bear. You'll drink your bear, and you'll drink yourself right down the drain. And this is why we've got to be tough. The moment I see that I am resentful, and that's a grace of itself to realize that I am resentful, I have to put on the psychological handbrake, the emergency brake. I stop the resentment. My gosh, I'm going down there. I destroy myself. It's still there, but I've stopped it. I've stopped it. But it's not enough to stop it. I've got to get rid of it. How do I get rid of it? There's only one way I've ever found out. i got to pray. Prayer. Prayer. Pray long enough for an enemy, you'll make that enemy your friend. If you don't believe me, try it. That is one of the greatest of the miracles. Lead us not into temptation. Show me where the temptation lies. Let me see. I've got to be a pro. I've got to anticipate trouble. I can't wait till it's in here. I've got to see it out there and make my move. I can't wait till it gets in here. It's too late. I've got to be alert. Watch and pray. It's not enough to pray. I've got to watch. I've got to be alert. I go to meetings and that keeps me sharp. I may be getting careless and I go to a meeting and I find out I'm getting careless. Deliver us from evil. Not only the evil of drunkenness, but anything that will contribute to drunkenness. Deliver us from evil, amen or amen, depending whether you're going to get the Latin or the English translation. Amen, the Latin, English, amen. Did you know the Catholics, we Catholics outside of Mass, say amen, the Protestant version is amen. It doesn't make any difference. It stands for the same thing. What does it stand for? Amen. So be it. It is well, or the modern version, A-OK with me. To me, this is one of the greatest of all the prayers. I want you to try this tomorrow morning. Figuratively or literally, take a sheet of paper, and at the bottom of that page, put Amen. Amen or Amen. And say, okay, Lord, fill it in. Anything you put on that sheet today is okay with me. A-okay. Because I know you're... There's your third step. Amen. And that's what I say. Amen. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.